Amen. If you got a Bible, let's look at Daniel 1 tonight. Again, we are taking a little bit of a detour from Jeremiah. It actually kind of works with our narrative in Jeremiah because this takes place kind of at the same time of some of the things we've been learning about. But tonight is a message that I really was working on for the end of the year. Um, I, I, I was thinking this would be a great way to end the year, but I thought, you know, this might, I might reuse it. Don't, don't, don't blame me. Don't get mad at me if I do. Uh, it'll be better the next time, though. I promise you that. But no, I was working on this as just really reflecting on this year. You might hear some things that we've talked about before, but I just thought this would be a really good conversation to have um, uh, on this night, on this Thanksgiving week. Um, I was reading uh, the book of Daniel. I was reading uh, Daniel 3 particularly, um, and there was a couple of words, three words that just popped off the page at me, and I just started reading those words over and over again. And then I backed up and began to read the, the backstory to that scripture and that story, and I thought, you know what, that is the perfect conversation to have with the church in light of what we face this year, in light of what we're facing right now and may face to come. I think this is a great conversation to have. So here we are. Uh, 2020 has been a, a, a ride, a, a wild ride in some ways, but we've made it to Thanksgiving. Um, so I don't know if we ever doubted we'd make it this far. Maybe we thought it would be a little bit different than when we got here, but we're here. Um, and even though the calendar may be about to change over to 2021, uh, the spirit and the lingering effects of 2020 probably will be around for a while. Um, even if, you know, when the calendar turns to January, um, if everything that was bad about this year is gone, on, you know, I'm, we're not going to forget about it, right? And of course, you know, I, I would love for everything about this year to be forgotten as soon as January comes along, but I'm, I'm imagining that some of the things with the pandemic and other things, they'll probably still be around in January somehow, some way, right? There's, there's, in some ways, the world has changed, and, and, and even if things go back to the way they were, we're still going to be impacted by what happened uh, this year. You can't just take a whole year and, 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 and that not impact you in some way, good or bad. But um, a lot of things have changed this year. Nobody saw the pandemic coming. Maybe some people did, but we didn't see it coming. We weren't sitting around at the beginning of the year thinking, wow, we're ready for this, or we're excited about this, or we didn't even want to think about having to get ready for something like this, um, because we just never would imagine that something could go like this. And, and for some of you that have been around a little longer than me, you know, again, you, you, we've been through things like this before, but, you know, never this to this capacity and to this extreme, and maybe because there's so many, there's so many volume knobs that are turned up to 11 in our world right now. Um, every avenue, every corner of the world of society is just pushing its words and its ideas into the world right now. We hear so many people's voices, and it just kind of makes things that are difficult, it makes things that are not normal or scheduled be that much more difficult to hear. And you can put your blinders on and put earmuffs on and you still can't get away from the noise. Um, it, it wasn't enough for a pandemic to come, but we've faced as, as a country, uh, what we've faced is really an imperfect storm. Um, and, and, and as a nation, we were already, if you remember back to February, March, we were already in the middle of a divisive political season, went through months of impeachment. Here's the, 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 the primaries and all the stuff that came along with that, all the rhetoric back and forth. We were already buckling up for what that would bring this year. And then all of a sudden things started shutting down and people started getting sick and the whole world went into a dizzying dive. So yeah, we were already de dealing with opposing voices on every corner, um, government, culture, media, people don't get along. Everybody from every angle was were screaming at each other already. And then this happened. Um, and it became, and, and people took it and, and, and went all sorts of directions with it. And, and of course, people's lives were impacted in the meantime. So all that sort of converged into this mess that has been 2020. In some ways, all of this uh, made it difficult to see and have clarity this year. 
I don't know about y'all, but there were times where you just, people were asking you questions and people, you know, as a pastor, you know, it's my job, I don't mind, but as people were saying, hey, what's your thoughts on this? I didn't want to, I didn't want to have a thought on it. I just wanted to be able to get away from it all. But there have been times in this year where it was difficult to see, difficult to hear clearly. But what I believe God has been doing through all this, and of course God is doing something, isn't he? I believe that there also is for us this year an opportunity to gain clarity and vision. Now, you might not think there has been much to be gained this year in terms of good things, uh, and I understand. Uh, We might not think this year as an opportunity as much as it's been an obstacle, and I understand. But this year has exposed so many of the lens that we view life through typically as being obstructive. And what I mean by that is we all see life through a certain lens through a certain visor and that's okay we all develop certain ideas certain you know ways that we see things and think things and process things but this year has really exposed that even things that are good and things that we would always go to and always have went to 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 kind of interpret the world this year has made even those things kind of unnecessary and, and, and obstructive and what I mean by this is whatever end of the spectrum you're on At least for me, this year has compelled me to not just put my glasses on from the left or the right, the way that I've been told to or have always saw the world. Uh, This year has told me to not just plug into the voices that my preferred political, social, cultural, ideological pattern promotes or endorses, uh, but, but this year has taught me to go to God. Uh, not that I wasn't going to God already, but I used to go to God and also go to other things, right? We go to the TV and to the Lord. We go to the internet and to the Lord. We go to our political, social, cultural ideas and to the Lord. But this year has taught me to take a step back from those things. Not saying I'm getting rid of all of them, because I have things that I'm always going to like and ways I'm always going to see the world through. It's just who I am. But this year has taught me, you know what? Maybe take those glasses off for just a little bit. This year has taught me to go to God and pray and seek His will through it all. Not that I wasn't before, but it's just the way I was doing it maybe was with a little bit of a different or with a little bit of a, of, of a filter that was unnecessary. Um, not just observe life and engage life through whatever viewfinder somebody has handed me. And I'll honestly say, I've grown a lot this year as a pastor and as a Christian, as a person. I did not expect to grow this much and in this way. I didn't pray for God to help me in these areas when the year began. Heck, I didn't realize or I didn't admit that I needed to grow in these areas. I didn't realize I had a weakness in these areas until this year exposed them. Now, maybe that's just me, and that's okay. But for me, I'm grateful. I've found a way to be thankful for this year because of that. But here's the messy, hard to explain, uncomfortable part of this life in general. You you see, if not for the trial, there wouldn't have been any growth. And again, if not for the trial, I wouldn't have known I needed to grow. But if not for the trial, there wouldn't have been any growth. And if not for the fire, there wouldn't have been any refining. The glass wouldn't have been made into a cup. The glass wouldn't have been made into an object that we can appreciate. It would just be something that would cut us. And here's where 2020 suddenly starts to make sense to me. Maybe not you, but it does me. See, when we thought about and considered 2020, people like me and people that get paid a lot more than me and do a lot, preach a lot better than me, 
all of a sudden started coming up with all these buzzwords because the year, the name just had this aura about it. You know, we threw, we threw words around like vision and clarity and success, prosperity and potential and progress. And while we often mention those things with physical gains in mind, obviously there's plenty of progress we all need to make spiritually and personally. We just weren't thinking about that, that kind of stuff when we initially thought about what 2020 might mean. And could it be, though, could it be that what has become clear in this year is that we often set our minds on, set our goalposts around things that are far less important than what we should actually be focusing on? Could it be? And I'm not saying that those things are bad or that we should never focus on them at all or we should never be interested in them at all. I'm just saying, could it be this year has exposed that we might give a little bit too much priority to those things? But what other things should we be focusing on, you ask? Sometimes, here's the thing, as believers, and again, I can only speak to the generation I'm a part of, and maybe it's been this way forever, but I'll talk to us. As believers in the 21st century, believers in America, we often focus on more, we often focus more on what we don't have than what we do have. Now, that's not just Americans. That's not just 21st century people. That's been people since the beginning of time. But I think we get a little bit, we've got a little bit of an overcharged version of this. It's just how we are. I mean, we're, I mean, we live in a country where the day you're told to be thankful, the next day is the day you're told to go get things that you don't have because you need that to be thankful, right? We, I mean, you can't, you, can't make, you can't make that up. Of course that happens in America. Now, nobody makes you go buy stuff, but you can't get away from it. Somebody's trying to market that to you. And could it be that what 2020 has tried to teach us and correct us regarding as Christians, and I can't speak to the world because the world, they serve a different master. But as Christians, we serve Jesus. And maybe what he's been trying to say to us is that we already have all that we need. We just need to start appreciating it and living as if it is enough. It's one thing to be thankful for it. It's another thing to live as if it is enough, as in actively D -d -d determining and declaring this is enough and not pursuing life as if it isn't. Plenty of people, plenty of people assemble in buildings like this and say, thank you, Jesus, you're all I need. But their lives Monday through Saturday suggest that he is not all that they need. So there's a problem, isn't there? I think someone needs to hear this tonight. I need to hear it because I need to be reminded of this over and over again, that's for sure. I'm not saying that our dreams for this year were necessarily sinful or wrong, but I am saying this year is what we got. And I'm going to just step out on faith and say this. Nobody prayed for what happened this year to happen. I think that's safe, isn't it? Now, somebody might have said, God, whatever it takes, but they, they're going back and saying, I don't know if I'm in that, you know. But nobody on the face of the earth said, God, send this because we need it. Now, hey, we might have needed it, but nobody asked for it. But it's what we got, isn't it? God isn't wrong for bringing us to this place, is he? Now, we all prayed for God's, we pray for God's will to be done every day, don't we? We all do, and we mean it. And we add our ideas to the plate when we pray, pray that prayer. And I do too. Of course we do. We're human. God's a good father. He usually gives us what we ask for, you know, in the bounds of Scripture. That's okay to pray that. But 
we got what we got, and I don't think God's wrong for bringing us here. So we've we got to wrestle with the in-between. I think he knows what he's doing. I think so. So it's up to us to get in line with him and get under his teaching to figure out what he's doing. And maybe we'll figure it out, maybe we won't, but we got to figure, we got to try, don't we? It could it be, could it be that on the broadest of levels, what he's been doing is trying to get us to see that there's more of him than we've experienced. And rather than looking for everything else, we need to look for more of him. And could it be that rather than chasing after more of the world, maybe we need to slow down and get more of him, receive more of him. Because I know that whatever the world's going through, God's still saying, I want to give you more of me. Whether you can get more of the world or not, God's never going to say, hey, I'm done giving you more of me. So maybe this is meant to get us down that direction. Now, Maybe getting more of him begins with appreciating who he is and what he's already given us, how he's been to us. I don't think that this, this line of thinking is too far off. But I'll be honest and say I didn't have this mentality 11 months ago. And you can bet, but you can bet I'll have this a month from now when the new year begins. I won't make that same mistake again. So you see, in a lot of ways, 2020 has subverted our expectations. Subverted our expectations. You know, in, in film and in movie making, there's a lot of writers and filmmakers who they get their hands on a prize franchise, you know, a series that's been around forever, and they don't just want to make another by-the-numbers installment. They, just, they don't want to just make another sequel that somebody else could have made. They really want to, you know, make their own brand-new take for the, for the series and give their own spin on it. Now, you can argue with the director as whether or not their vision is accurate. Some people, may, you know, say, well, that's not the movie, that's not the series as I want it to be. That's not the way they used to make them. People, always, people don't always like when sub expectations are subverted. Some people, you know, don't go see another one or don't read another book or don't watch another show when the expectations were subverted once, that's all that they, you know, that's all that they that were in for. But in this life, God is the director. God is the designer. God is the author. God is the alpha. God is the maker, and God is the master. And sometimes he subverts our expectations. Sometimes his plans subvert our expectations, but what if where he takes us or what he wants to give us is a superior vision, a 2020 sense of clarity. What if he wants to give us perspective and greater appreciation for who he is? And what if that mentality, what if that dwelling place, what if that living space is the launching pad to becoming who we really want to be? Now, I want to just go ahead and warn you, and we've already know that we already know this. This may not lead to full bellies. We'll have plenty of those tomorrow. But this could lead to a full heart. But isn't that what we really won't need more than anything? Now, I've asked you to turn to Daniel 1 tonight uh, for a brief and special walkthrough through the journey that God took four young men on, wherein they realize how blessed they were amidst excruciating and extreme circumstances. As they began to understand their blessings, they began to tap into more of God than they really knew that they could experience 
much more than they may have arrived at otherwise. Now, y'all know the background for, for Daniel from our studies in Jeremiah. And Nebuchadnezzar has launched an attack on Judah. He hasn't destroyed the place. He hasn't conquered the place yet. That's in 586 B.C. But in 605 B.C., he besieges the city of Jerusalem, brings the nation to its knees. He removes the king Jehoiakim and installs a vassal king in his place and takes the previous king and all of his household into captivity. Now you understand the implications of that. When King Jehoiakim and his household are taken captive, all the understudies, all the sons of Judah, essentially the lineage of the kings of Judah was ended. There would be no more sons of Judah that would rise up and take the king, take the throne. The, 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 the people in the king's cabinet, his bureaucracy, all sons of Judah who may would be princes one day, who could be king one day, all of them were taken to Babylon and their dreams of being king, their dreams of being princes, their dreams and their, their really their, what they were born to be, leaders in the nation of Israel, sons of David, bringing the nation of God to the world, bringing his glory to the world, their dreams and the promises God made to them because of their lineage, those dreams died in 605 B.C., there was no coming back for this generation. The best and the brightest were screened by Nebuchadnezzar. And unlike most kings of the ancient world, he did not kill or even enslave the king's households of the nations he conquered. He would take them and he would screen them and he would put the best and the brightest with the most potential into his administration. But he did it through a very thorough process. They would be brainwashed. They would be given the luxuries and pleasures and the education of Babylon. They'd be taught a new language, given a new name, and they were, for three years, they were systematically brainwashed to forget their origin, forget their background, and embrace a brand new world. They were also emasculated, as in their manhood their potential to have kids, their potential to continue the lineage of their nation taken from them. And they were assimilated into the empire. A new name, a new language, a new identity. They were no longer the boys they were when they were taken. They were soldiers, they were victims of this brainwashing, but they were now members of the Babylonian court. They would be under the learning of wise men and would become assets to Babylon if they cooperated. The book of Daniel tells us about this process. Daniel 1, verse 1 through 7 tells us the details. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. He brought the articles into the treasury uh, house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature, the ideas of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the provision of the, and 
of the wine which he drank. Three years of training, of brainwashing for them, so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king, or as in, they might be ready to be Babylonians. Now from among them, the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to the chief of the eunuchs, as in they became eunuchs, that's the second part there, he gave, the, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, he gave Hananiah the name Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azirah, Abednego. So there's our four famous Hebrews, Daniel being the one who is most famous, the one who wrote the book. Of course, we know the other three pretty well as uh, also, now think about this, their lineage of generations of sons of Judah, their potential, their silver spoon life, had the status quo just been allowed to persist in Jerusalem, they were set for life, they were well-to-do, they had all the money they could ever want, had all the privileges they could ever need, they had more than they could ever use, but that was not in the cards for them. They get shipped off to Babylon, they lose their identity, they get put through the Babylonian car wash, and in the process... They're exposed to the wilds of paganism, given an opportunity to cut ties with all they had been taught. And most of the sons of Judah cast their faith aside, but these four did not. And that's why they're remembered. I heard a quote that really fits this so powerfully. Andy Stanley said that our abilities and our gifts may determine our opportunities but our characters determine our legacy. Everybody that was taken had the ability and the potential and the gifts to make it in Babylon. But only four are remembered. Because only four had the character to survive what they were about to face. This is not what they were promised as children, but while the story doesn't go into detail, they would be under immense pressure now in Babylon to abandon their traditions and convictions. Any mention of their former faith could get them killed. And we see that Daniel is the first to kind of suggest that he's not going to just fall in line. Now notice in verse 8, he doesn't mention his faith specifically. Because he's already been told, you better not mention that ever again. But he opposes some of the orders that he's been given. It says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, meat that was offered to idols, things that were not kosher for Jews to eat, the wine, of course, that he wasn't going to drink. He didn't want to do that to his mind. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So we see... Daniel, he just, got, he just got sent through the whole thing for three years. You cannot mention your God ever again. If you do, you're killed. Don't stand up to the king. This is your kingdom. This is your king. This is your God. Look away from that stuff. But Daniel has made a decision in his heart. God, I, don't, I haven't figured out how I'm going to get through this yet. It's not going to be easy for me to navigate these waters, but I'm going to make a decision. I'm not going to compromise my convictions. Now, isn't it true? Remember back when you were in high school, and maybe, maybe this isn't good memories for you, but hopefully this is. Remember back in high school when you made a decision that you weren't going to do this? And the first time you really stepped out, it was easy. Well, I'm not going to cheat on that test, or I'm not going to go to that party, or I'm not going to drink that. I'm not gonna... It was easy to say no the first time because it really wasn't that tempting. But then later on, you found yourself in a temptation that was a lot more difficult, right? 
Now, this first temptation, Daniel made a decision in his heart. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to cross that line. And he passed that test. And, and as he says, hey, I'm not going to take this meat, I'm not going to eat these meals, it actually proves to his benefit, and people begin to applaud him and his friends for being so bright and so, so you know, determined to be the right kind of people, be the right kind of, you know, right things that Babylon needs. And again, their, their convictions had not got them in really big trouble. It actually made them a little appreciated, and, and that, you know, would be rewarded. Look at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all their literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the day, when the king had said, had said they should be brought in, and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, the king interviewed them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They were promoted. In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all the realm. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't know what's different about y'all, but I wish I had a hundred of you. I, I don't, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about it yet because they were terrified. Now, they'd already made a decision, hey, we're not going to compromise, but they're not here testifying, okay? They're just, go, they're just trying their best to get through. And look at it. They're promoted, they're awarded, they're applauded for their, you know, for their brightness, for their faith, even though they didn't, you know, that wasn't really overt. They hadn't yet had, they hadn't yet had to outright stand up for their faith or stand against the pagan ways, but that day would come. In the meanwhile, we see their hearts were wired to God. We see that even though they had lost everything, been removed from their environment in which it was easy to be a believer, after all their expectations were subverted, they held on to their faith. Their faith was not tied to a building in a certain city on a certain day of the week. It went with them to the other side of the world with a new name and a new language and new everything. Isn't that incredible? The year 605 B.C. might have taken a lot from them, but it had not taken their God. The year 605 B.C. is remembered among very few dates in the ancient Israel history books as one of the worst years of the nation's legacy. It took the future of Israel away. It took the hopes and dreams of a Davidic dynasty that would never end away. It took this idea of Solomon's kingdom that would go on and on and on forever. They hope it, they hope it comes back, but it hasn't. To this day, it hasn't. Now, we believe Jesus and the Messiah has bigger things in store, but they don't see that. 605 B.C. ended so many dreams, but it did not take the God of these four men away. Nothing could and nothing would. That didn't mean the enemy would not keep trying, though. That leads us to Daniel 3. Now, y'all know this story. We sing about this story a lot. But the backstory: Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He saw a statue of different elements and colors. Daniel, who had been promoted interprets the dream and identifies the statue to Nebuchadnezzar. The top of that statue, the golden part, Daniel tells him, is the kingdom of Babylon and is Nebuchadnezzar. But at the point in the dream, this point in the dream was to suggest that Babylon wasn't forever because the statue as it went down turned to silver, then to bronze, then to iron, then to clay. And the point of the dream was to tell Nebuchadnezzar that you're just the first king in a line of many kings that are setting up something bigger. 
God is in control. One kingdom would give way to another as he sees fit on his watch. Nebuchadnezzar, don't get comfortable. You're a king, but you're not the king. So Nebuchadnezzar, scared a little bit that Daniel could interpret his dreams so vivid, so clearly, he pays some lip service to Daniel's God. But he starts thinking about that dream, and a voice, when the, a voice from the enemy enters his ear and says, you're not going to fall for that, are you? I mean, you're the emperor of the world. You're not going to believe that, that somehow, someway, somebody's more powerful than you or that you might lose? Are you really going to listen? Did Daniel really say, has God really said you might lose? Are you going to let your pride fall because of some silly dream some Jewish boy interpreted for you? So Nebuchadnezzar wakes up from that moment of clarity and says, on second thought, there is no God greater than me. He says to the empire, I had a dream of an image, and it was entirely gold. Are you sure it was entirely gold? Daniel, away on a very special assignment, wasn't there to tell people that it wasn't all gold. Nebuchadnezzar said, I had a dream. It was golden from head to toe. The image was me, and you're to worship me. So here is this image, and when the music plays, and when, you, when the time is right every day, you must bow and worship your king as your God, because he is eternal. Daniel, away on assignment, had left his three secretaries running his office in his absence, (laughs) and they weren't about to bow to this image of gold. Daniel 3, verse number 8, says, Therefore, at the time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in the symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall and worship shall be turned and cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So there's these certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And that's not going to fly, O king. So Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, In symphony with all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? That's quite a statement. If you're ready, good. But if not... You're in trouble. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do know, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom, is, whom we serve, is able to deliver from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, 
we heard you. But if not, you're in trouble. But if not, we're not in trouble. Let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. See how they kind of take his words and throw them back at him? But if not, now how could they say that? I mean, they, you know, being witty is one thing, but they're, they're putting their whole neck on the line here. I mean, verse 16 is great, isn't it? Or verse 17 is great. I mean, our God's able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if not, we have enough, even if we lose everything. God is all we need, even if we lose all that we have. Can you imagine having not just that kind of faith, but that kind of satisfaction and security in God? Because that statement does not just come from a place of great faith. This statement comes from a place of greater satisfaction, as in God satisfies us more than anything this world offers. And even if worshiping Him costs us this world, we believe there is still greater satisfaction to be found in dying for Him than living for you. We have God no matter what we face or what comes upon us. They had come to be so content, so grateful of the peace and perspective they had by their faith. They were unfazed by any potential persecution or pain. Isn't that completely unreal? Could you honestly, I'll go ahead and answer it for you. I couldn't. Could you honestly see yourself saying that in the face of something like this? I mean, we, we in our country, we quote scripture saying God will never let this happen to us. We pray prayers asking God to never bring us to this place. But what do we do with these fearless saints? Are we supposed to just say, well, that's cute, but hallelujah, I'm never going to have to deal with that. I mean, some might would, in fact, say that the fact they left the door open is a lack of faith on their part. I mean, there's some charlatans out there that would tell you because they even say, but if not, they don't have enough faith. <laughs> but that clearly is not the case. Don't move past this moment too quickly. They were able to make this statement of faith because they had taken hold of true life. They had learned to live only by faith in God. After losing everything, rather than clinging to Babylon... For hope, they remain steadfast and dependent on their God. But I'm telling you, we can only arrive at this place when we understand that God is good, whether we have it good or not. See, Nebuchadnezzar said, if you're ready to bow, good. As in, you'll have it good. And isn't that what you want? And they said, no, 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 no. Y you, you see... Our God is good, whether we have it good. When we are able to say, but if not, and really mean it, not with a wink and a nod, but with total sincerity and being confident that God, that God's will is good, whether or not it feels good. Because I don't think it was going to feel good to go through what they were going to go through. I mean, come on, Christians. Do we believe this? Do we believe what we quote a lot? All things 
We know that all things work together for good. Do we believe that? All things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Do we believe that? All things work together. You know the thing about work? It takes some time for something that gets started to be completed. All things. You see, we won't believe Romans 8.28 until we believe this and do this. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. What's the will of God? The circumstances you're facing right now. We won't believe all things work for the good until we do this. Give thanks in all things. Until we do this, as Paul says in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks while you do it. That's not just referring to the things that you do willingly. That's referring to the things that you do, but you'd rather not do. That makes sense? As in, go through six months of I don't know what, it, what we went through, right? Going through things that you would have loved to not go through, but here we are and we can't get out of it. The door was right there for these men. All they had to do was pay Nebuchadnezzar lip service like he paid their God lip service, and they'd be free, and I'm sure they could have been forgiven. But, but they took it as God's will that they be in this moment, and they owned the moment. They didn't bail out. They didn't fall out. Now, we know how the story ends, but let's read it. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression of his face, his face changed to, toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that the heat of the furnace be turned up seven times more than it was usually heated. I mean, I guess he wants to kill them faster. Yeah. He commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, it's down in a hole, so Nebuchadnezzar was watching it because it was like gladiators. They were watching this happen, watching people suffer. And boy, they were not ready for what they saw. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, because they've got an audience here. They're ready to watch this. This is a spectacle. People paid for this. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, Lord, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the son of God, the one I pretended to worship and then took my faith out of. That God, I'm pretty sure it's him, the God of the Hebrews, he is in the midst of the fire with those men. I mean, I gotta, this is, I've never thought about this until, a little bit, until the earlier today. How many years was this before Jesus showed up in flesh? About 600 exactly. Yet there he was in the fire. Do you get this? 
The world got to see Jesus 600 years ahead of schedule because these three men were totally and fully satisfied in God and did not bow down to man. Do you get that? God changed his schedule and showed up because these three were totally and fully satisfied. The world got to see Jesus way ahead of schedule. You see what's going on here? When we are fully satisfied in God, God will be fully glorified in and through our lives. And he will show up in ways like never before. And the world will get to see him like never before. This wasn't a mega church. This was barely a church. Jesus said, two or three people gather in my name. There's just three of them. They barely met the quota. When we go through the fire like we have this year, we're being refined. We're coming to a greater place. We're coming to be used for greater things. You see, you see what's on the line with, thing, with years like 2020? And while maybe we've been given a greater clarity than we would have realized after all, God showed up when nobody expected him to because these men had faith when nobody expected them to. Later on in the book, Daniel, of course, exhibits, exhibits the same mentality when he himself refuses to bow. He's the only one who survived the transition from Babylon to Persia. He's the only one fortunate enough to be still alive and in power because the Persian king saw him as so wise and gifted that he shouldn't remove him. Yet, a similar situation happens. The Persians try to take Daniel down, and they create these laws to do the certain things. And Daniel says, hey, I'm not going to refuse to worship my God. I'm not going to refuse to, do my, to live by my faith. I don't need this job. I don't need this life. I don't need y'all. I have him. And the king of Persia threatens him with the lion's den. And Daniel says, you go ahead and throw me in there with those cubs. The lion of Judah will go in with me. I dare you. How did he get to that place? Because he was most satisfied in God. He was thankful in all circumstances, rejoicing in every season. And for that reason, he was full when everyone else was empty. He found reasons to be thankful when everyone else found reasons to be miserable. And the moral of the story for these four men and so many others in Scripture, God was enough for them. They didn't need more money, more power, more success, more pleasure. They had him, and they only wanted more of him. And when they were put feet to the fire, they worshipped him rather than taking an easier road. The Apostle Paul talks about the trials that he faces. But he also talks about how he saw revelations that nobody else has ever seen. And he talked about how he considered the trials the enemy brought to him were temptations to knock him off of his faith because he'd been given such a place in the kingdom of God. And every time he felt overwhelmed, Paul says, I remembered the words of Jesus. Because he said to me, my grace is sufficient or my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness as in you're never going to see the fullness of my power until you are the weakest. 
So Paul says, therefore, I will gladly boast and glory in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As in, I'm never going to experience all of him until I'm emptied of all of me. And if it takes the enemy beating me down to get me that week, then hey, I'm glad to get there so that God might raise me up. He says in the verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. With 605 B.C. or with 2020 A.D. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He was content because God was enough. So the question we have to answer tonight is, He enough for us? Are we thankful for him when we have nothing else to be thankful for? Is there enough of him for us in the seasons of trouble to still make our voices louder than ever? Start reading about who he is. Start listening and listing what he's done for you. Start rejoicing and worshiping. Go to God and say, God, you're enough and all I want is more of you. Thank him for this year and for the opportunity to be emptied of everything and be filled with him and him alone. Few people. Few people have ever found themselves in the situation that Daniel and Abrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Paul ever found themselves in. Few people have went as far as they went, but also few people have experienced what they experienced. Is God enough for you? If he is, what do we have to fear? We can say to whatever temptation or test, but if not, God is enough. God is enough. And for that, I'm thankful.